Now, if you've never heard a sermon on hellfire and damnation before, you're going to hear one today. And I'm glad it's Roy rather than me. Reading from verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Roy. Is that it? Oh, it sounds better, right. Can we have the first slide? Happy St. Patrick's Day to you all, you Sassanachs. <laughs> and um, St. Patrick, as you know, was the apostle to the Irish. He brought the gospel to Ireland um, many, many years ago. And um, you can just see, this is a picture of, a, this is a, actually a statue in the hill of Tara in the center of Ireland. And he's holding a shamrock in one of his hands. He used that to teach the creed. In fact, the creed was only written um, and circulated uh, within the same century that he was born, uh, around the uh, early 400s, and so he taught the truth across the uh, island of Ireland. He actually came from uh, somewhere in Britain, could have been Wales, and that's of course why the Irish rugby team graciously allowed Wales to win yesterday in memory of our patron saint. Um, I think that's how it goes, anyhow. (laughs) Anyhow, Uh, We're uh, following a a series on the creed, and of course we've looked at I believe in Jesus, and um, today we've arrived at that part of the creed which Barry has read to us, which reminds us of the fact that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. I've never preached a whole sermon on this topic before, but it has been fascinating doing some research and reading into it. But the Bible teaches, as you can see, that Christ Jesus will judge the living and the dead. This is from the book of Timothy. And it is a frightening prospect if you don't have an assurance that you belong to him. Because what lies ahead is indeed a frightening story. But nevertheless, 
the facts. Now, last time I was here, I showed the wonderful thing how Jesus came down from heaven to earth. And of course, we sing the Christmas uh, carol. He came down to earth from heaven. Who is God and Lord of all? And we see how he humbled himself. The creed describes he was conceived of the Virgin Mary, uh, of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. But then, Barry presented just last week how he rose again from the dead. And he ascended back into heaven and is currently seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that position of authority and on the throne. But this passage reminds us that he's not staying there for good. He's going to come back to planet Earth, and when he comes, it will not be as a little vulnerable, helpless baby. Rather, it will be as that last picture showed, in front of the armies of the Lord the angels and believers together to judge this world. And the message is indeed a ponderous one for us to think about. And of course, judgment isn't the, uh, this is not the first time that God has judged this planet. If you go back, and we did a series some uh, years ago on the book of Genesis. And the world got so evil that God said, I hate them. I, I, I can't stand what they've done. It's continual evil. And he judged this planet by drowning it. And only those in the ark were spared. And Peter reminds us that that world was deluged and destroyed. But by the same word it says, the present heavens and earth, that's the one we live in, are reserved not for water, but for fire. And we're being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, just as that flood did in those generations ago. Now, I wonder, does anyone recognize this photograph, and can you tell me where it is? It is a frieze painted in a church. Anybody know? City? It's in Salisbury, in St. Thomas a Becket Church, right in the heart of the city, and it's called the Doom Painting. It's over 500 years old. It's medieval. And as you can see, it gives a view of Christ on the throne. And down one side, you can see on the, your right-hand side, are those who are damned and perishing into hell. And those on the right are those being raised again to eternal life. And so the theme is a frightening one. But nevertheless, it's one that causes us to understand the context of the passage that Barry has read to us of what's called often the Great White Throne Judgment Day. Does anyone recognize this room here? One person does, she thinks. Well, I'm glad you don't because this is the inside of Salisbury Courtroom. I've been here. Uh, I'll explain in a minute where, where I was. But if you go to Salisbury Court, they, they, they took it away from the old one down in the center of town opposite the White Hart, and they built a new one out the Wilton Road. And if you look at the courtroom, and I've been in here with a, a judge wearing a huge red cape and on it, and you will look, you'll find there are several parts and positions. This bit is called the bench. There are three chairs if you've got a magistrate's court sitting. There's only one chair occupied by a judge if it's county or crown court. That is the highest spot, you'll notice, in the room. It sits above everybody else, and the judge is seated there. Just below the judge 
are the recorders, the staff, as it were, the, law, the, the, um, the people who work for the court who have got books of law laid out across the table and they have got the, uh, the, the principles of law in front of them and advise the judge and court. Directly opposite them on the other side of the room, you'll see there's a glass screen. Here it is. And that is called the dock because in behind that sits or stands the accused who is accompanied by two prison warders, one on either side. And then sitting high, slightly above everybody else, but not in the line of sight between the judge and the accused, so the judge can look the accused in the eye and the accused can look the judge in the eye, but to one side, deliberately so, sits the jury. There's actually two benches here and six chairs each. That's the reason I was there. I was being selected for jury service and I stood just about uh, in front of the dock uh, as the judge decided who would come and sit in the jury and who would not. And then finally across the far corner you'll see uh, it's, it's like a pulpit with a microphone and that is the stand where witnesses come and give testimony through the uh, proceedings. The rest of the chairs and tables you can see there tend to be taken up with lawyers and people attending, and those chairs at the back are usually for the press. But that is the situation within a courtroom that we see. And that situation is the same as the one we have just read and heard about. There is a judge who sits at the highest point. In this case, if you turn to your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, don't worry, I've written them all out because I know you're not all going to do it, but the the words will be up here. And uh, the, the bench is the highest point, as I said, the judge sits there. Here, the judge sits on a great white throne. The word great is mega. It's an enormous throne. It's white because God is pure and spotless, and holy, and just, and perfectly so, and uh, he sits above all in judgment. And then the, uh, you can see books flying around there, I've referred to the clerks and recorders, book of life, and so on, uh, and um, in front of it stands the accused, and the jury to one side. I'll look at each of these in turn. But if you look at verse 11, it says, The earth and heavens fled away from his presence. And you may ask me the question, whose presence? Who sits on the great white throne? Well, you would say, well, God sits there. That is correct. But how do we recognize him? And the answer is, it's Jesus sitting on the throne. He came down to earth from heaven, but he shall come again to judge. Jesus is the judge. And you either know him as your savior here and now, or you will appear before him one day and he will be your judge. There is no in between. And um, uh, it says in John's gospel, Jesus said these words, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Hence, it's Jesus sitting on that throne. And notice that judges do not stand. They sit. They are in a position of authority, and they are in a position of dominance because they are going to be judging, reflecting on the evidence, and entering uh, the decision. 
And then it says the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. Now, God created this world. What's the first thing he created? Well, there was sea, and then he he created the heavens. And then he created the earth. Well, they've gone. They are no more. Do you know why? Because he's bringing in a new heaven and a new earth to take their place. But here we stand. The heavens and earth have fled away. They're gone. There is no hiding place for any human being on this planet. It's gone. There's no cover because all are brought and called to judgment. Now let's go into the trial itself. Standing before it, it says here, I saw the dead, great and small, so they're all equal. There's no kings. There's no judges. There's no uh, chiefs of police, armies, navies, air forces. There's no sir honorables, lords, some of this. No, no, no. There's no paupers. All are one. There's no rich. There's no poor. There's no presidents. All are on an equal basis. All humbly stripped of everything they've possessed and owned and open before the God who created them and before whom they stand. And they are the accused. They're brought before the judge. They are in the dock. And the evidence and testimony is going to be brought forward. And note that these here are described as uh, the, uh, the, um, the unbelieving dead. I just want to make quite clear If you're a believer in Christ, everything I'm going to say in the next few minutes is of no relevance to you whatsoever. You are not going to be there. You're not standing in that crowd. This is the people who have rejected Jesus Christ. This is not the believers. You have to read earlier in the chapter to hear the glory of the believers. And if you look at verse 4 of chapter 20, you'll discover the believers are actually sitting where the jury sits. And that, I hope, helps you to understand. And it says that the dead, small and great, are standing before the thrones and books were opened. They are standing because they are now about to be sentenced and charged. And that sentence is about to be carried out. And then it says that the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up. So there is no hiding place anywhere. So the dead are standing, and all people are left here who, do not have, who have not trusted in Jesus. And notice that there will be no living people in this place. Let me explain. If you go back to chapter 19... It describes how Jesus comes down with his armies and then the wicked people on planet earth who are alive oppose him. And it says he will strike them and kill them in 1921 with the sword of his mouth. All people who are not in Christ are killed, destroyed, and then brought in the next chapter forward for judgment. And hence that's who are gathered here. And it then says, death and Hades gave up the dead. Death, what is death? Uh, It's the absence of life, some people say, if you look at a dictionary. But that doesn't tell you, that tells you what it's not. What is death? Death is the exit door to this physical life. Go through that exit door, you've died. And we know that we all will die and have that ahead of us. What then is Hades? 
Hades is a Greek word for the land of the dead. In Hebrew, the word is Sheol, which means the place of shadows. It's like the custody room, the waiting room for those who have not trusted in Jesus. And they're waiting in prison, it says. The word Tartarus is used, which is a Greek word for prison, and awaiting judgment, final sentence. And that is the picture and the images here. Then the third thing that we see in this image is that the evidence is exposed. It says, I saw them standing there. Books were opened. Then it says, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. A sentence is announced. And then it reminds us they're judged according to what they had done, all in verses 12 and 13. The evidence is the books. That is plural. That is each individual, as it were, has got a book. Now, if I was to write this book of Revelation today, I would do it differently. You know if you're involved in an accident, they'll say, give us your story. No, we don't believe you. Give us your story. We don't believe you. Ah, show us the video. Now we know what happened. And we're all very much into videos and modern things. If this book of Revelation were written yesterday, they'd say, the videos are up. The video of your life from the moment you were born to the moment you died is going to be played back What, all of it? Yes, all of it. Danny Blanchflower was the captain of the Northern Irish football team in the 1960s. I know that's not very important. They weren't very good. But he was also the captain of Tottenham Hotspur, who were the top team in England and in the the, the football league. And he captained them at Wembley. And there was a chap who, who was called Eamon Andrews, ran this program called This Is Your Life. He happened to be from Southern Ireland. So he said, this is your life. And um, he would come across very famous people and he would capture them at a moment unawares and he would tap them on the shoulder, pass a big red book over and say, this is your life. And they would then be brought into a TV studio and then they would stand or sit there and then all their relatives and all their friends would come and the story of their life would be displayed on various uh, stories of what people would say and pictures of them sucking their thumb as a little child and all the embarrassing things. And then the story would be told through and the audience would all applaud. Danny Blanchflower stared at Eamon Andrews and turned his back and said, I am not having my life exposed in public and he walked away thereafter the program makers because it was live recorded every subsequent incident because they didn't want that embarrassment to happen again but this is judgment day this is your life what you've done in terms of your behavior the sins you've done the wicked things you've thought it's all up there It's in public. It's being produced as evidence in the trial. There is nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. And that's what it means by the books being opened. There are actually two books mentioned in this. There's these books, which are the individual record that God can see of every human life. But there's another big book. We'll come on to that in a few minutes. But then it says the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Sentence is announced. And sentence is different from salvation. Sentence is based on the degree of wickedness and evil that these individuals had shown. God is completely fair. So when he's punishing this world, he will not punish Adolf Hitler 
with the same degree of punishment as he would punish a petty criminal. But both will be punished, not just because they've rejected Christ, but for the wickedness that they have done on this world. And uh, we know this elsewhere because Jesus visited the city of Capernaum and performed some miracles in them. And then he condemned it. And he said this, he denounced the times in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And he said, Capernaum, you think you'll be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to hell. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained. I tell you, it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. It is crystal clear there are degrees of punishment, and the most wicked will suffer most, and the least less. Now, I don't understand the details. I just know the facts as, as Jesus explained them here, and I'm sharing them with you. But it's difficult to illustrate this. Now, I first heard someone preach a sermon on this. I've only heard someone try it once, and it was in Belfast. Uh, a fellow called uh, Reverend Dr. John Haggai was an American evangelist. He came to Belfast, and he put a big tent up in Ormo Park, which actually is directly opposite Ian Paisley's big church. So that was, that was fun. Anyhow, we went along and uh, ha- ha- had a look. And he preached on the theme of the great white throne. And he said, I want you all to imagine that here we are standing before the great white throne. And over here is the enormous throne with Jesus seated on it. Uh, and over there is a doorway with fire blazing out of it. And, uh, and over here is is the door where individuals come across with the books in their hands. And you are the accused, standing and waiting your turn. And then he went on to say, the door opens. And in came a man trying to wash his hands. His name was Pontius Pilate. And he limped his way into the flaming furnace. The next one came in. And the chap didn't look up. He looked down and ran as Judas Iscariot ran across to meet his fate. And he said, and the door opens, and you're next. Well, that was quite frightening. (laughs) But um, it's a point to think about because we must all give account before him with whom we have to do. But whatever exaggerated way of explanation that might be, the point has still to be made that we come as individuals. We don't come as a big crowd. We can't hide. One by one, our books are opened, and we need to understand that. And the degrees of punishment are relational to the degrees of wickedness and sin. But I did say there was another book. Remember that picture I showed you of Salisbury's um, uh, courtroom? There's the bench, but just below it, there's the the, the court recorders, the, the clerks. They have the books of law. Well, in this court scene, there is a massive book called the Book of Life. Just one of these. And in that book are the names of all those who have come to Christ Jesus. And it's mentioned six times in the book of Revelation, the book of life. And in one part, in chapter 13, it's even referred to as the Lamb's Book of Life. The lamb is Jesus, Jesus who sacrificed as a lamb for us. We're in that book if we know and love him. 
And Jesus said to the disciples, look, rejoice, your names are written in heaven in this book. How do you get your name into the book of life? Well, Psalm 69 turns this on its head. In verse 28, it says this. The psalmist is praying that the wicked's names may be blotted out of the book of life. That's a different take on it. Moses uh, at the um, mountain of Sinai was speaking to God. And then the the Israelites started making a false idol, a, a golden calf. And Moses was so perturbed when God showed him this. He said, Lord, please forgive their sin, but but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. He was prepared to have his name blotted out so that his fellow Israelites might remain in it. But God answered this. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Another Old Testament references give you the similar idea. It would appear that we start our lives with our name in the book of life. So you say, well, what happens when a young child dies? Has it ever had the chance to repent, to understand the gospel? No. Then it's never had the chance to reject the gospel. Its name is still in the book of life. So don't worry about the the innocence God has them cared for. But if the truth is that at some point in your life you reject Christ and you do it again and you do it again and again, it gets to the point where your name starts to fade and God blots your name out of the book of life. Now, I know one on planet Earth, but you will know when that comes. I mean, you may not even know. But that name is raised from the book of life. Guess where they will be standing on the day of judgment? With a book of their own full of sinful lies that has to be opened up and exposed. And that is the difference. When you become a Christian, your name is guaranteed. It's written by blood into that book. It is underscored that you are saved forever. And we start and Jesus confirms it is in. If you receive and repent of your sin and receive Christ, John chapter 1, then he makes you his child. Well, I'm on to my last slide, but I have a few points to make because these, this thing's quite a serious bit because it's, uh, as Barry read out, chapter 20, the last two verses give a warning and explain to us what the punishment is for those who have uh, um, not come to Christ. And it says that death and Hades were thrown into a lake of fire and describes the lake of the fire as, as a second death. Let me deal with those two things first and then I'll come back to uh, an, another point. Death, as we know, is swallowed up in victory because Jesus destroyed death. There will be no more death after this event. If there's no more death, then Hades or Sheol or the the waiting place of the dead, well, that's gone. And they are slung and thrown into the burning, fiery lake. They've gone. They're no longer permanently removed. Hallelujah, because that's what Jesus has done. He's brought victory over death. It then describes what's called a second death. 
all of us, I expect, will die physically. And our bodies will go into either a coffin or some urn or something and disappear either in a hole in the ground or in a little pot or get cast upon the sea or rivers. Wherever, it matters not. That is the first death. But it describes this lake of fire as the second death. That is what awaits a spiritual death that is eternal. And that is a future for those who don't trust in Jesus. Jesus warned the Pharisees, how will you escape being condemned or judged to hell? Jesus spoke more about hell than any other preacher in the Bible. It's quite uncanny. And uh, he advised that it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And as Jesus taught the idea of fire, I didn't invent it. And he used the word Gehenna, which is a Greek word or an Aramaic word, for the place of fire. Now, Gehenna actually is a spot outside Jerusalem. If you go to the south of Jerusalem, I don't know if you saw it, probably they've got rid of it. Anyhow, there's very steep drops in the old city of Jerusalem. And what they used to do was to toss the rubbish over one end of this uh, mountain and down into the valley below, and they burnt it. And so what you had was this continually burning, decomposing pile of rubbish, burning and smoking at the far end of the city. That place is called Gehenna. That is the exact picture Jesus used of hell. A place of eternal decomposition, but it looks like it's still there. It's always there and it's still always burning. Never appears to be destroyed. There is no annihilation of the humans after death. Hell is eternal. And that is the picture that Jesus used. I have to present it. It's not my idea, it's his. But let me tell you this. Hell was never invented for human beings. It was never intended that one human being would ever go to hell. Jesus explains this himself. He states explicitly that the eternal fire, he says in Matthew 25, was prepared for the devil and his angels. The idea is that the the, the fallen angels and spirits would be placed there, not human beings. And if you read the book of Revelation in chapter 19, just before this one, we see that the Antichrist and the false prophet are the first to get put into this burning uh, um, uh, lake of fire. And then just before the passage that Barry read, we discover the devil himself is cast into this burning lake of fire and is got rid of along with death and Hades. Yet unrepentant humanity, like Cain, will suffer the same fate. Jesus said to those who uh, thought they were okay, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire. I never knew you. Matthew 25. Now, what is hell like? Don't ask me. I have no intention of going there. But the best descriptions we can get are clearly using imagery of fire, destruction, decay, and so on. But we see some other pictures of it. The rich man, and the story of Lazarus in Luke 16, the rich man cried out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Insatiable thirst, unfulfilled things. I am in agony in this fire. 
separation, loneliness, abandonment. Cain's wandering was aimless. He lived a fruitless life, couldn't take from the produce of the earth. A fear of his hostility and mental torture at being permanently separated from God, from everything that is good, from healing, from life. Perhaps that's some indication of what hell may be like. It's a spiritual punishment, so it's difficult to be certain how physical that might be. But the effects and impact will be no less severe. It's something to think about. I think I'm done. I think I've covered my last point here. But I just want to say a couple of closing remarks. You don't need to look at that. You can look at me. This is a picture of the final separation of wicked mankind, of people who have turned from Christ, who haven't accepted, including angels, God's God's vindication of his true righteousness. This is good triumphing over evil forever. Now, some may ask, how can a God of love allow this outcome? If you're naive enough to ask that question, you clearly have never read the history of the Jews under Hitler. You've never read what the Nazis did. You've never been to Bosnia or to Afghanistan or that chap that that fellow called, what was his surname, Tarrant, who just a couple of days ago killed so many people outright, innocently. You haven't witnessed the wickedness that goes on in this world. And we forget that God sees every single act. How could there not be justice How could a loving God not show justice if he truly loves his people who are crying for vindication, for vengeance? They're crying to be spared and their cries go unheard so often as they're slaughtered innocently. God to be good must be God. He must be good. Good must triumph. Otherwise, this world has no point. God has made it clear it has a point. There is a judgment for those who truly love him and good will be shown to win. But God did bigger than that. God did far more. He allowed this wickedness and this evil to be taken up and he sent his only son, Jesus, and he put him on the cross. And do you know what he did? He took that burning lake of furnace of fire and he poured the wrath of sin on his only begotten son. Jesus took it all for us. And now offers a free pardon to those who will come. Not only can you be in the court and get a free pardon and leave it. The Bible says when you come to Jesus, you'll never even go near the court. Because you're already vindicated and freed from sin's destruction. God shows his love and justice. And C.S. Lewis put it very nicely like this. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so on Calvary. Do you expect God then still to forgive them if they reject? And C.S. Lewis goes on to say, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. Something to think about. If you were to appear at the last day, 
and were to say, but God, you never gave me a chance. You never told me. You ne- I-, I never knew this. I'm afraid you're too late. Today I have told you, and the people in this church have shared it with you too. There is no excuse. But the joy is that we're not here to celebrate wickedness and the destruction. We're here to celebrate that Jesus is coming again to bring us to heaven to be with himself and to remove us from all evil, suffering. No more hospitals, no more police, no more armies, no more navies, no more wickedness, no more horrors, no more bombings and destruction, no more illness, no more hospitals, no more police, no more uh, courts. He's going to bring us to peace and eternal life if you come to him. And I trust that you have, but I don't know. And there may be somebody here today who's been coming to our church and has yet to discover who Jesus is. I've got a little book called The Case for Easter. That's coming up in a month's time. Easter, Christ rose. He rose to bring new life. He can bring new life in your heart and life. I'm very willing to let you read this if you want. You can take it. We've got other booklets and things that might help. Do talk to Barry or to somebody else you know here to share how you too can come and have your name secured in the book of life because Jesus has died. We're about to celebrate that in a minute's time as we celebrate in the communion. But let's just bow our heads. Let's pause for a minute. Let us consider where we stand. Are we confident our name is in the book of life because we have Jesus in our life and heart? Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. Come today, come in to stay. Come to my heart. In Jesus' name, amen.